Three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Jan Stocklasa, and he comes to us all the way from Sweden. He's nine hours ahead of me, and he has just published a very fascinating uh, book that I finished last night. The title of that book uh, is The Man Who Played With Fire, Stieg Larsson's Lost Files and the Hunt for an Assassin, Assassin. and its English publication was just this month, October 1st, 2019. So it's available now on Amazon. And uh, it's a very fascinating book of events that took place in Sweden with the death of Olaf Palma. But uh, Mr. Stoklasa is, uh, published the book in Europe last year. The title of that book in Europe is Stieg Larsson's Archive, The Key to the Palma Murder. And it has been sold in 50 countries and translated into 27 languages. And his first book was published in 2007. That title is Caught by Prague and is based on real events that exposes corruption in connection with Saab and British Aerospace's attempts to sell supersonic jet fighters to the Czech Republic. And in the aftermath of that book, police investigations were opened in seven countries. He has also been a Swedish diplomat and launched new newspapers in the Czech, uh, in Czech Republic, I think, at the time and has been also a journalist. So his website is his last name, Stocklasa, S-T-O-C-K-L-A-S-S-A.com. And I'm just delighted that he's here today. John, are you there? Yes, I'm here, and it's good to be here. Awesome. Well, thank you very much to Green for the interview. Excellent book, very fascinating, incredible details. And for people who don't know your name, can you talk or add to the background that I included in the intro and then talk about how... You became interested in the uh, the subject of what we talked in the, the pre-interview, which is really the European JFK, the death of Olaf Palma. Well, I, I had written my first book in 2007. That took me three years, actually. So I started in 2004, and I published it, and... Uh, Pretty soon after that, I started to look for another topic, and um, and suddenly there there was a murder happening just next to my summer house, uh, more maybe like a winter house if, since we're in Sweden and it's it's pretty cold here. But it, uh, three kilometers or, or two miles from the summer house, there was uh, uh, they found a woman dead. Um, and um, I, I googled the name of the of the farm where she was killed, actually, and um, um, I re- uh, and I found a t- completely different murder, uh, 170 years earlier on that same spot, um, and that I, I, I was really fascinated by that. So I started looking for more places where there may have been uh, double murders or double crimes, and I found a few more spots in Sweden. I was going to write a book about that. And um, but when I was doing research into that, I found a place in the center of Stockholm uh, where there was a, uh, a crazy person living who, who was running a campaign against uh, our prime minister Olaf Palme. And I started doing research into this character because he was he would be really great in that book that I was writing. And in an archive, I found a paper that wasn't signed, speaking about a middleman in the murder of our our prime minister. And I asked the lady who had the the archive, who wrote this, and she said, Stieg Larsson, the crime writer. And I was completely flabbergasted. I I, I didn't know what to say. Why do you, why do you speak about our crime writer that she was he was doing research or whatever? And she said, Yeah, she he spent 
many years actually doing research into the murder, unsolved murder of the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme. So that's how I got into this story, by a lot of coincidences, actually. Interesting. And for people who don't know about Stieg Larsson, can you talk about him and his importance to Swedish crime fiction? Well, Stieg Larsson is the star of, of, of uh, Swedish crime fiction uh, that you may know under the name of Nordic Noir or Scandi Crime or something like that. Um, but he, he has sold 80 million books. Um, uh, it's the Millennium series, The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, you may know. And um, uh, actually... He knew that he would be famous. Uh, he had just turned 50 years old. He had written three books, handed them in uh, for publishing. And just then, um, uh, when he had got his first advance, uh, he walked up seven stairs and got a heart attack and died. And so that's part of his fame also. Fame. And that was in 2004. So even before his books were published and became internationally famous, uh, he he also one of the interesting things about this book and what it enriched my understanding of Stieg Larsson is he had a pre kind of uh, journalistic life prior to the publication of those books and you can kind of see how his earlier life influenced his fiction and how the, the same themes went into his books. Um, can you talk a little bit about Stieg Larsson's research and how you came across it and why it was important to your investigation? Yeah, yeah. So he actually sold, when he died, he hadn't sold one single book yet, only the contracts for it. And after his death, death he has sold 80 million books. Uh, so he, he was actually a poor guy. Um, yeah, he, he was uh, a journalist. Um, he was, his mission in life was actually to write about and to map networks of uh, right-wingers in Sweden and in Europe mainly. Um, so that, that was his... Uh, mission that went on for his whole adult life actually and um, but from that um, research that he was doing continuously um, he, he actually got interested in the murder of our our prime minister he was at the time he was working at the, uh, the Sweden's largest uh, news agency called TT uh, and immediately and our prime minister was uh, killed on the 28th of February 1986, so we're more than 33. It's more than 33 years ago. And in the morning after the murder, Stig Larsson came into his office, and he, his task was immediately to to make a map of how the murder had escaped from, from the scene. He was also an illustrator, actually. So he got all the information from the reporters of this news agency and started drawing this map. So... Quite soon, he was one of the persons who knew the most about the murder, actually. That's fascinating. So he was writing articles and really on site. And that, that murder was a shock to the people of Sweden of all different uh, political backgrounds. Can you talk a little bit about how the murder took place and the events surrounding the death of Olaf Palma in 1986? Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a defining moment in Swedish history, and the, if you would compare it to something in the U.S., it's definitely the JFK. Um, um, it's a thing that it's a moment that everybody in Sweden they know what they were doing when he was killed, and 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 what they were doing when they when they heard about the murder. Um, and um, it was uh, it was obviously winter. Um, and the winter is dark and cold in Sweden. Uh, and it was a Friday night, 
um, and our prime minister had decided to to leave his home together with his wife. They had called off the bodyguards. That was something that would sound naive today, but in those days, he actually thought that he would be really he would be safe in Sweden. Nothing would happen. Uh, that he he was in a safe haven in the world. That proved wrong. They went to the to a cinema to a movie theater. Uh, the late show started around 9 p.m. in the evening. Uh, they got tickets, to, this, even though it was sold out. Since he was the prime minister, they managed to get some uh, seats for them. For them, and two hours later, lots of time for someone to prepare. They stepped up to, out of the theater, uh, started walking along a street, and some half a mile later, a man stu- uh, stepped up from behind and shot one shot in the back of our prime minister. Uh, and he fell down, and before he f- hit the ground, he was dead. And it was a very high-caliber weapon, right? It was a Magnum three fifty-seven. Is that right? Yes, correct. Uh, and also metal-piercing ammunition. So it was uh, not the best best uh, gun to to use for such a killing. Uh, and the fact that also that they only shot one shot is something that make me and and many other people think that it was actually not a professionally performed action. Fascinating. And so he, there was another shot fired that grazed his wife. Is that correct? So there were two total shots in the middle of the night that w- in a non-silenced uh, weapon, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, the uh, Magnum revolver uh, with that type of ammunition is extremely loud. Uh, and so no silencer um, and also only the two shots. So... The second one was a miss, as you say. It grazed uh, the wife, and um, I actually believe that it was aimed for the prime minister. Uh, but since they were using the double action, had to use the double action on the second shot, it, it was actually he turned the the gun a little bit to the right and grazed the wife instead. And then what happened next? Um, the murderer stood for a couple of seconds, uh, then put down the gun uh, into his jacket and uh, started running into an alley uh, upstairs that are quite steep, 89 steps, um, and that was almost the last. Oh, that, that was the last thing we 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 know of him actually. So uh, Palma Palma died almost immediately. What was his background, and why would he have? antagonists who uh, wanted to see him dead. Yeah, that, that, that's that's a really important part of the story because that's that's what you realize while, while, while reading my book or getting into this topic. Um, but he, because he was actually quite important in, in world politics also. He was uh, the greatest statesman of Sweden in the 20th century, possibly in the history of Sweden. Um, he was... Uh, he, he, his aim was actually he was always on the side of the, uh, the 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 smaller states in in the fight between the superpowers the USA and the Soviet Union. Uh, then he was also on the side of uh, always on the side of these of the smaller countries, and that the third world uh, mainly. So it was in Africa or in Latin America or in Southeast Asia. And that led to that he had a lot of problems actually in international politics. Um, the Soviets didn't like when he criticized the invasion of uh, Afghanistan or Czechoslovakia earlier, um, and the USA didn't like when he was criticizing um, the v- Vietnam War. Um, so he, he was actually disliked abroad, 
and also in Sweden, he was actually loved by half the people and hated by half the people, if you simplify slightly. Right, and he was a, a devotee of what was known as the Third Way, right? So he didn't align himself with either power block, but still had, a, a, I would say, a strong social conscience. He was involved in the anti-apartheid movement. He had been in contact and friends with uh, people in South Africa. So, And also just involved, he was very high IQ person also um, was from a, a privileged background, is that correct? Yeah, uh, definitely. The apartheid, uh, anti-apartheid engagement w- w- went on for his whole political life. His first political action was actually to give, give blood and collect money against apartheid, in the fight against apartheid, for the fight against apartheid. And um, so he was... Um, um, the, that that type of, of character who, who was actually engaging always, um, yeah, that what he called the third way in in, in politics. And you had a question more there, William? Are you there? I sorry, I hit I hit mute. Um, is there anything uh, else about Olaf Palma that? you would like to add or that I missed? Uh, you, see, you actually said some... Uh, I, uh, I missed a part of your question. I forgot oh, it. So. I apologize. I'm hitting the mute button. I'll edit this out. The um, <laughs> Is there anything about Olaf Palma, about his third way or his activism or anything else that you would like to add before we kind of get into the details of the investigation into his assassination? Well, Olaf Palmer was also, he was from the upper class, uh, so when he's, he became the leader of the Social Democratic Party, he was actually viewed as a traitor of that uh, that camp, um, uh, the right-wing camp of Sweden. Um, and at the same time, he, he was he was so intelligent and, and so well-spoken that he came out quite arrogant in, in debates. So he was, even in, among Social Democrats, he was also considered um, at least foreign. So, uh, so he had he had actually enemies in all camps, also in Sweden. Gotcha. And so, how did the investigation progress? And and can you talk about Stieg Larsson's uh, investigation as well, please? So, if Olaf Palma was uh, the greatest statesman of Sweden, he was actually too big for such a small country uh, as Sweden. And when he was killed, the murder also became too too big for Sweden, uh, for the Swedish police. So they wouldn't, they didn't know how to handle this. So from the beginning, from immediately after the murder, everything was handled, or not everything, but there were a lot of mistakes made uh, in, in the first night and, and continuing through the first year or so of the investigation. Uh, one one of the mis- mistakes was actually to point what what the government thought was a very loyal uh, investigator, a, a person who was actually close to Olaf Palma, uh, Mr. Hans Holmer. The only problem was that he was a high police officer, but he had never investigated a murder, and he became the responsible. Um, and uh, he actually started going immediately in the wrong direction. Um, he was starting to look at the the Kurdish Liberation Army, the PKK, Liberation Organization, the PKK, um, and, uh, and went for that trail for, for a full year uh, before he was sacked, actually. Um, so, 
so we lost a full year of, of investigation. Um, and obviously, Stieg Larsson was following this and he was gathering his own information and he was, uh, he was gathering information mainly on right-wingers uh, in Sweden, right-wing extremists. Uh, that was sort of the second trail that some policemen police officers believed in, but they didn't get the attention of the, of the head of investigation. And at that time, Stieg Larsson was working for, uh, I mean, it was described in your book, it was a rad, they called it a radical magazine, but how would you describe his work and his outlook at that time in 1986? Well, in 18, 1986, he was, he was, and for quite a number of years, he was actually still working in the news agency, and that, that was more of a normal, normal media outlet. Um, collecting information and, and distributing to newspapers. Um, some years later, he started the, the radical magazine called The Expo, uh, which is, is the role model for, for Millennium um, in his novels. Um, but, but he was... Uh, he was since he was at this news agency he got a lot of information and together with the uh, the mapping and the research that he was doing into the right wing net networks he was actually one of the people that knew the most about what became the main trail in the second year of investigation i see now what was that trail that was the right wingers of sweden that were cooperating together with the South African Secret Service um, to kill our Prime Minister. And Stieg Larsson started collecting the information um, and actually handing in information also to the Swedish police. He wrote memos and he met them several times and handed in information that they acted on in the second year of, of investigation. And he was a very uh, detail-oriented investigator and kept a lot of his newspapers and files and can you explain at what point all of that information you became aware of that information and how you got a hold of it and how it was integrated into the book well, let me just add that in the second year of, uh, after the second year of investigation it was really close actually that they would have sold the murder um, if Stieg Larsson was right and if and I believe he was uh, but then we got a new head of investigation that said no 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 it's not a conspiracy this is uh, a, a, a loony uh, one person who has killed our prime minister uh, and he went off on off in the right in the wrong direction again and we lost that went on actually for another three decades. That was Christopher uh, Pedersen, is that correct? Uh, yeah, the person that they found was a drug abuser called Christopher Pedersen. Uh, but just two years ago, um, we got a new DA, a new prosecutor, who's leading the investigation, he, and he's called Christopher Peterson. Uh, so the prosecutor, Christy Peterson, says, has said that, no, no, it wasn't the drug abuser, Christy Peterson, uh, who did this. So they have got the same name, actually, uh, which is uh, another twist in this story that I think only Stieg Larsson would have made up. But yeah, I mean, you can see that this, the whole twists and turns of this real-life situation informed his fiction. It just feels like even the vignettes in your book or in four, you can just see this kind of Swedish, kind of gothic elements of uh, this put into his his fiction. It's really fascinating. It was really incredible, incredible read for me. Um, so, yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, but, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, so, wh how did you find out about 
uh, Stieg Larson's investigation into this, and how did how did how did that become something you looked into? Well, you can imagine how Stieg felt when when they went off in the completely wrong direction for actually long, long time. Um, and so, and he, but he continued his work uh, until he died in 2004. Um, he knew that he would be famous um, and he had a lot of information on the murder of Olof Palme. Um, but when he died, uh, the people around him, they were completely paralyzed. They didn't know what to do with everything. Um, and there was this turbulent situation with a suddenly world-famous close person to them. So they took his papers and packed it into cardboard boxes and just put it away into a rented storage facility. I forgot about it. And that was in late 2004. Um, and, and then nine years later, 2013, I had come on my own path through different coincidences. I have come to, to find this paper by Stig Larsson, um, and then later I realized that there's more. Um, and I found this uh, rented storage facility and persuaded the people to open it up for me. And I thought maybe I'll find a box or maybe two boxes or whatever. And we pulled up this iron door uh, and it... Um, there were 20 boxes full of, of Stig Larsson's documents on the murder of Olof Palme. Documents, memos, um, his letters, uh, notes, you name it. So that was one of these defining moments for me. And you integrated those into the book, starting off the book, as one of his papers. He was in contact with a guy, Jerry, I forgot his name, in um, England. So he was having these... Uh, exchanges, these letter exchanges with other people talking about this event. So I, that was a really incredible aspect to the book was these inclusions of Stieg Larsson's original impressions about the assassination, you know, at the time of 1986-87, you know, so I thought that was an yeah. aspect. So how did it continue? Once you got all of his information, what happened next? Well, you're right. The, the 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 first letter is fantastic. It's it's seven seven pages where it describes the murder and it describes the witnesses and everything to to his friend Jerry Gable in, in the UK. So it it, it is it, it's actually uh, I think it's, it's a pretty obvious start for a book. But it's um, um, what I did then was actually to start. I started scanning. I started reading. I started organizing it, and it was pretty clear pretty early that. He had he tried several theories over the time as an investigative journalist should do, uh, but then he, he quite soon had a main theory, and that was that the South African Security Service um, organized the killing of of our Prime Minister. They used a middleman uh, that Steve Larson handed in a memo about a thirty-page memo they had, he, that he handed in to 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 the, to the Swedish police already one year after the murder, and that middleman found helpers and patsies in Sweden, Swedish citizens that were actually helping out uh, in the murder, and they were mainly right-wingers. And that was that uh, Bertil Wedden, was that the middleman that you're describing? Yes, yeah, that's that, uh, Bertil Wedden in, in, in northern Cyprus, that's the middleman that Stieg Larsson wrote about. And he was, Bertil Wedden was uh, part of a stay-behind group and had affiliations with Operation Chaos or something. You wrote about that and I think those are themes that my listeners would know. I've covered Operation Chaos, but uh, oh, you did. Cool. yeah. So 
yeah, it keeps popping up. I did an interview with somebody about uh, James Jesus Angleton, who was the head of Operation mm. Chaos and had been in Europe and uh, had been involved with all these post-World War II groups, yeah. right, right-wing groups. So, um, mm. There's an excellent book about uh, Operation Chaos by Matthew Sweet from the BBC, uh, dealing mainly with uh, the Vietnam deserters um, living in Sweden. Oh, Stockholm, uh, and they were infiltrated by uh, Operation Chaos by 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 the CIA. Um, yeah. Well, so yeah. I'm sorry. Continue. No. So um, um, probably. Well, yeah. we were talking about Bertil Wetten and uh, Bertil. Maybe you can talk about Bertil Wetten and why he was important to. Uh, an important figure in trying to investigate the assassination. Well, Bertil Wedding was was part of of Stay Behind in Sweden. Uh, Stay Behind that it was actually founded in Sweden by William Colby, uh, who later became the CIA director. And so, and and uh, Wedding was belonged to the Stay Behind, and as he said to me when I met him in Cyprus, um, that he was uh, part of the more right wing. Wing of um, uh, of the Stay Behind group in Sweden, but he was also very close to the uh, to the business leaders of, of Sweden. Uh, so he lived for ten years in London until three months prior to the murder of our Prime Minister, when he suddenly moved to Northern Cyprus, the Turkish occupied part of Cyprus, um, where he has stayed since. And that's a pretty good stay, uh, place to stay if you don't want to get uh, extradited, because there are, it's not a, a non-recognized country, so there are no um, no ways of get to him, no way of getting to him there. Um, so he's been living there for 33 years more. And he's still alive uh, as of today, correct? Yeah, and the interesting thing is that the Swedish police have known about him since the first days after the murder when they got the information, the first information that he may be involved in the murder, um, but they haven't met him. They haven't even interviewed him properly uh, by phone or anything. So, uh, But they're still, now they've confirmed that they are trying to meet him. Um, so they can't. they aren't able to do something that you did in person, correct? Yeah, and I think it's a little bit, it shows a bit how slow, probably not professional, the, the Swedish police is, because uh, I went down there um, five years ago, six years ago, uh, and managed to, to find the place where I lived, and I managed to find a phone number to him. I called him up and, and, and got an interview with him first, for it should be for one or two hours, and in the end I, I spent three three. Not close to full days with him, drinking beer and actually asking all the tough questions that he, the police should have asked him. Yeah, and that's all included in your book, the three days of uh, discussing with him. And he's a little cagey, but he did provide inf- provide information about his relationship with all these other kind of people that uh, seem to have been involved in the assassination. Can you talk about his background in South Africa, etc.? Yeah, he was, uh, um, was when he, when he moved to, to London, he started um, um, acquainting the the Monday Club, where the Tories of of, of the UK were. So he he had 
big context into the into the right wing of, of England also, um, right, -wing, right wing politicians, um, even meeting with Margaret Thatcher, um, and um, then he was uh, also accused of having performed burglaries uh, in London for th uh, into three offices of of the liberation organization so southern africa um, and it in the end he was freed but it but he admitted to me and to others that he was actually working for the uh, south african security service also that you call boss boss BOSS, yeah and at yeah. that at that time okay i'm sorry please continue and the person that that recruited him was Craig Williamson, uh, uh, also called the master spy of South Africa. Um, and Bert Levedini told me how he actually uh, got got to hear about him after a scandal in Sweden where uh, Craig Williamson had been infiltrating an organization. And when he was revealed as an infiltrator, Bert Levedin read about him and admired him so much that he went down to South Africa to meet him and started working for him, handing in information to the uh, South African Security Service. And at that time, let's see, in 1986, the apartheid was kind of on its last legs in the 80s. I think the final uh, change of government was 1994. But there were the, the South African intelligence uh, security services were very active not only in South Africa, but all over Europe as well, trying to uh, engage in a covert war to restrict uh, anti-apartheid activists. Can you talk about that? Sorry, can you repeat, repeat the question? It's a, little, it's a little too long. But the, the South African security services were involved in bombings and uh, anti-apartheid. Um, anti uh, they were trying to subvert anti-apartheid activists. And I think that that's important in looking at the Palma case because I think within that context you can see all these bombings and killings that were taking place in Europe at the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does definitely. They were, um, and they were doing it. The South Africans were actually active also in Europe, so they were actually carrying out. Um, terrorist acts, we'd call it, in, in, in Paris and in London, um, bombings, shootings, uh, and, and also in other countries, and most likely uh, also in Sweden. Uh, not only did we have a prime minister killed in 1986, but in the summer of 1986, um, there was a bomb in Stockholm um, in the, the office of the ANC, the ANC that is now in power at, in, in South Africa. So... They, they were carrying out all these terrorist acts and they were desperate because they, they started to feel that they are coming to an end. And, and so they were, it was um, the last years of, of their existence. Um, and they were also definitely a part of the Cold War, the, the war between uh, capitalism and communism. Uh, where they were on the side, on the good side, uh, they were on the side of the UK and the USA. Um, and as um, as Craig Williamson put it when I met him, I did the dirty work for my government, and my government did the dirty work for Western governments. That sh tells a lot, I think. So there's like a chaining. Can you talk about traveling to South Africa in 1996 and uh, what that part of your investigation was like? 
Well, I wasn't there in 1996. It, in the 1996, th that was the time when the uh, the South African agents started telling on, telling on each other and started blaming each other for being involved in the murder of Olaf Palmer. And, and that information had been around for 10 years, actually, because that information also came to the police, Swedish police, in the first days after the murder and continuously during uh, these 10 years. But they did never followed up on it, they, except in the second year of of investigation for a short while. Um, so that was the truth, really right? That was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That's when all that stuff came out, correct? Exactly. Yeah, that's when people actually, several people, stepped out and said Craig Williamson organized his killing using Bertilla Bedin as as a middleman in the killing. Also, so the the information that Stig Larsson handed in nine years earlier came out. 10 years after the murder in uh, suddenly in South Africa. And that became top news all over the world. I see. Then I traveled, uh, um, uh, and that was in 2016. Um, so actually 20 years later than that, I, I went down there and I met with Craig Williamson and a lot of other agents and also there some of the victims of the, the, the act, terrorist acts that they were performing. And I found it was interesting that they bombed a, f a personal friend of Olaf Palma. I think her name, she was one of the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement there. If it was at Fleck, or she was uh, the, was it Joe Slovo's wife was one of the... Yeah, uh, Ru Ruth First, in first English, time, Ruth Thirst, I think yes. the Afrikaans say. But yeah, um, yeah, so yeah, that was a parcel bomb that was sent by, uh, by Craig Williamson. Um, and he admitted to that also, and he says that it was aimed actually for for Joe Slovo, uh, but it was opened by his wife Ruth first, uh, and she died. Um, so th that was one example of when actually Craig Williams was involved in in murders, or as he says, actually um, military acts. They had a different outlook on those. Um uh, bombings and things like that. You talked to McPherson, who casually related a lot of his, you know, uh, all of his kind of warlike activities in a very blithe manner, at least in my opinion. Yeah, uh, it, it it was extremely cynical, and uh, for for someone who has not been in a war, it's it's like it's completely. Uh, it's not. It's hard to understand that you can look at it in this way, even because now it's it's been peace in 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 relative peace, at least in South Africa for for 25 years or, or so, and that's uh, they, they should be able to 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 realize what 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 they were actually doing at the time, but that doesn't really seem to be the case. And can you talk a little bit more about uh, what happened after you interviewed Vedin and how, how your investigation progressed? Yeah, so, so after, after I interviewed Vedin, I also realized that he had uh, only very few friends. And one of his friend, close friends was actually a, a, a Swedish person um, that I had come across earlier also. Uh, but I didn't know that he knew... Uh, Bertil Vedin, but I now I found out um, actually through emails uh, that I got delivered from from a person who has helped me a lot in this story, Miss Lida Komarka, Komarkova from the Czech Republic. Um, so I, I, I got 
Bertle Vedin's emails uh, in my hands, and I realized that he had a very close acquaintance. Uh, and, and it was a person that I late, later found out had been also a, a very strong suspect in the murder. And that's where we come into the second part of the book, where I come after the, um, the actual people that were involved in the killing. And, um, I mean, it's interesting, your, your, your investigation kind of parallels the girl with the dragon tattoo because the main character has this other woman, uh, Elizabeth Santander, who does a lot of his research, and you seem to have found your own Elizabeth Santander in the Czech Republic. Did you ever uh, see any interesting parallels like that? Well, I didn't at the time really uh, but afterwards it's it's pretty obvious because this this the woman that helped me uh, she was uh, daring <laughs> she was uh, uh, she had got tattoos actually uh, and she was also uh, when i asked her if she would help me she was also she said n yes in a way that a, a normal person i would say wouldn't say would uh, she wouldn't do it like that she, she said yes before uh, she uh, she realized that she could say no um, and and um, she became definitely my Lisbeth Salander, uh, and she met uh, with this person that I think is heavily involved in the actual killing of our prime minister, uh, and using cameras and recording equipment to actually get quite a lot of information that I have handed in to the police also. Gotcha. And one of the things that was interesting about... Uh about Stieg Larsson was that he had written a book called The Extreme Right in 1991 and how that this this kind of theme pervaded his books as well and did you I when I read his book Girl with the Dragon Tattoo I thought that maybe the mentions of Nazis was a little bit more uh an artifice more of a like a fictional thing but did you think that there's that many right wing or hard right type sympathizers in Sweden in 1986, even to the present? Well, Stig Larsson definitely wrote about the real real world, including the Nazi connections. Uh, so, so, of course, Sweden was uh, neutral in the war, um, but for the first three, four years of, of the Second World War, um, there were probably more pro-German sentiment here than pro pro-ally sentiment. And when they started losing, it turned quite quickly, I would say. Um, so it's... Um, and, and, and quite a few of the Nazis uh, survived and, and whitewashed themselves and, and were successful in their, um, in their businesses and even in politics. So it's definitely a true description uh, in that sense. Um, so, so it's... Um, and I learned a lot from that, also from from even from the novels, but also from Sting Larsen's archive, uh, where there were there were lots of of names names that I have, would have a hard time actually publishing here because it, you would be attacking actually quite powerful people in Sweden. So, so so what he did was actually to use his research to write these novels with a political backdrop all the time interesting because um, so, i thought that there was a parallel between the main family and the girl with the dragon tattoo and the wallenberg family did you find that parallel to be accurate or, or i wouldn't go that far okay. actually 
uh, they're also very powerful, <laughs> but it, um, but it, but it, but it, uh, the Wallenbergs have definitely been involved in in a lot of business, uh, also with Nazi Germany. Um, but I, I would never call them Nazis. Actually, that, that I wouldn't go that far. But so, um, yeah, sorry. Vedin himself did have time or worked for one of their newspapers, though. Is that correct, Bertil Vedin? He worked for a a. Um, a news service, a newsletter that they were publishing, and uh, that's true. And he he was actually indirectly working, and uh, there was only one person in between him and and Marcus Wallenberg, uh, the only one, um, but uh, the senior Marcus Wallenberg. But he was, um, um, but he was. Uh, so so in that sense, you may say that they have have this connotation. But it, uh, virtually Bedin is not a Nazi either. I would say, but he's a he he calls himself a, a self a uh, fierce anti-communist. Um, so there are always ways of describing things in different ways, as you know. Right, good terms. But he himself came out, Vedin himself came out and said he was against Palma as well, though. I think that that was in the book as well. Oh yeah, he 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 he, he, he has been quoted in a press press conference actually where he said that uh, I devote my life to fight communism uh, and also to fight. Um, the, the government, the Swedish government, include uh, mainly Olaf Palma, together with the Nordic secret services. So he was actually saying that he was working for the Swedish secret service, but also for others in, in Denmark and Norway. Interesting. One of the aspects of the book I found interesting was that how the police seemed to have almost intentionally bungled. You referenced something in Pippi Lopstocking, Flick and Flack, these kind of keystone. Actually, one of your titles is Keystone Cops. Um, mm. Did you feel that any of that was intentional, or did you find any evidence for that? No, I, I think the quote in the the English version uh, on the first page is actually uh, "Don't put um, malice behind uh, uh, something where there is enough with uh, with um, stupidity." Stupidity. Right. Hamlin's razor is what you quoted. That's good. I'm going to remember yeah. that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. So. and that, that's I, I would say that if you, there may be one or two actually crooked uh, police officers in this, especially in the secret police. Uh, but I think the main thing actually is just that they're just stupid and really, really unprofessional in how they perform the the investigation. Well, we are at forty five minutes, Jan. Is there anything I missed? Anything you would like to include, or uh, while we wrap it up? And how can people get the book? Well, I, I would say the most important thing for me was actually to write something that is entertaining to read uh, on a on a quite a hard topic. Um, so it's if you're interested in in these times, but think it is hard too hard to get into, uh, but you would but you want to read something about it and 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 you like thrillers, so that, then you should read this book. Um, that's was my my whole intention. Um, I'll probably follow up with some something more much drier um, so and the book you can get it at Amazon um, uh, and also you should be able to get it at, at, at normal bookstores in, all over the US and your website again is stock loss or your last name s-t-o-c-k-l-a-s-s-a dot com and it is a great read it is very fascinating lots of details and uh, really enriched my understanding of Swedish history and Stieg Larsson so I commend you for writing the book. It's an excellent book. Congratulations. 
Thank you, William. That's re really great to hear. All right, John. Thanks so much. Have a great day, and I appreciate it. Thank you, William. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye.